the summer, uh, we have intentionally been in a series uh, dealing with the Psalms of Ascent. These are the Psalms recorded in Scripture from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And historically, what we believe that the Psalms of Ascent were, were songs that uh, pilgrims, that travelers on the way to Jerusalem to worship during uh, specific festivals or specific times of the year, they would sing these songs together as they're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Some scholars actually think that they would sing them in succession as they would get higher and higher to Jerusalem. Uh, We don't really know the whole history and how that worked out exactly, um, but that's what a lot of people believe the Psalm of Ascents were. And so this morning we're dealing with Psalm 126. Uh, We've got a few more weeks dealing with... um, with the Psalm of Ascents, uh, to look at these things. But, um, but like I said, this morning we're going to dive into Psalm 126 uh, specifically. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read God's Word, um, and then we'll move on from there. So let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together once again this morning. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Word that draws us to worship you and draws us closer to you. God, I pray over the next few minutes as I spend time talking about Psalm 126, as we dive into your word and sort of dissect it a little and allow it, hopefully, to speak to our hearts and minds. God, I pray that you would be at work drawing us to you through your word. God, I pray that you would use me to raise Jesus high, that Christ might draw us to you. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance or virtually no importance. God, but your words are of utmost importance, and so God, I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of your love, an instrument of the gospel, that you would be glorified, that Jesus would be proclaimed, and that we would be drawn to you and encouraged because of the work of Christ. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 126, it'll be on the screen Um, If you want to look in your Bibles as well, please feel free to do so. But this is the word of the Lord from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126. I absolutely love songs that tell a story. Songs that deal with with narrative. When my wife, Amy, um, who is way more musically inclined than I am, when she listens to music, she hears uh, the musical side of things, the chords and the chord progression, the notes, the melodies, the harmonies, the major keys, the minor keys. I don't know what any of those are. That's what Amy hears when she listens to music. And she critiques how she would do the song differently. And she critiques how the song is structured. And she's drawn to the structure and the musical nature of the song. Me, I'm not gifted in that way at all. I can't figure any of that out. But what I really like about a song is the story that it tells. The narrative. 
the story. And so I'm focused on that when I'm listening to music. And I can put up with a lot of different musical styles and what some would consider bad music, provided that the song tells me a story. And I actually prefer that it be a really, really sad story um, for whatever reason. Uh, I find great hope and redemption in sad stories for some reason. In Psalm 126, this is a song, like I said, that the pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem would be singing. We don't know the musical structure of the song. We don't really have any way to know that. But what we do know is the story that this psalm is telling. This story that the song was telling is a, is a shared story that the people, as they go up to Jerusalem, as they're singing, it's a story that they share together so that they do not forget their collective history as a redeemed people of God. If you look at the psalm and you look at the first three verses, it's apparent that these first three verses uh, contain sincere gratitude to the Lord for some past deliverance. They tell the story of a time when God in some powerful way delivered his people from their distress, from their captivity even. These verses tell the story of what God did for them. They're not specific enough to tell us exactly when the event happened was or what the event was. Some scholars actually think that the psalm was written directly about um, the nation of Israel coming back from captivity in Babylon. Uh, Calvin would go so far as to say that Ezra himself wrote this psalm as the people of God came back to Israel. But, but we don't know. We, we do know that it's a story of great deliverance for God on behalf of his people in some powerful way delivered them from distress. And the beautiful thing about this is, though, even though we don't know the exact circumstances of when God delivered his people, um, it makes it generically or generally applicable to all of God's people, whether we know the specific deliverance or not. We know that God delivers. The last three verses of the psalm seems to be a prayer. It seems to be a prayer for God to do it again. God, you delivered us once before. God, do it again. It's a prayer for God to come and do it again. And that's actually um, the context of the psalm. The psalm starts out one way and it ends another way. It starts out saying, God, we remember what you did for us. God, we want you to do it again. And that happens over and over in the psalms, and especially in the psalm of ascent. starts one way, ends another way. And you have to remember there's the way that the song ends that really tells us the context of the exact event that led to the writing of the psalm. So clearly the psalmist is in a situation in which he and, people, and the people of God need some type of deliverance, some type of help, and they're remembering what God has done in the past for them collectively, and they're asking for God to do it again. And the writer recounts this memory that's so powerful, that means so much to him and to the people of God, and then he prays, he petitions, he supplicates, he lifts up a prayer of intercession to God, asking God to do it again. That's what this psalm is about. God, you delivered us. God, please deliver us again. Last week, I talked about how these songs were meant to be poetic and emotive and colorful and full of imagery. They are meant to speak to our minds through our hearts. 
not directly to our minds, but indirectly through our hearts to our mind. And so what does the psalm have to say to our minds through our hearts this morning? What can we glean from what the psalmist wrote? Here's the first thing I want us to see, okay? Number one, this psalm provides the perspective that God delivers his people. The psalm provides the perspective that God delivers his people. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This psalm provides the perspective that God delivers. In doing so, however, this psalm provides a, a small portrait of the entire history of the Old Testament, while at the same time, it illuminates our story. Your story and my story and our story. And here's what I mean, right? Stay with me on this. This song is the song of the restored people of God, the people of God who had known captivity and who had known restoration, right? Imagine being an Israelite. Imagine the shared story and the shared history of the people singing this song on the way up to Jerusalem. Uh, Imagine the story of being in captivity in Egypt and then being delivered to the promised land by Moses and Joshua after escaping Pharaoh's army and living in the desert for 40 years. I mean, that story turned Moses into a national treasure. Imagine being in captivity in Babylon because your ancestors repeatedly worshipped false gods, because they failed to obey, because they committed adultery against God, and then being brought back to your homeland that you may not have known anything about purely by the grace of God. By God's providence, by His grace. On the one hand, the story of the Old Testament is a story about Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius, of men like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and kings who turned away from God and God's people being um, disciplined for their sin. But notice that the perspective of the psalm here Because it gives us the principle as how we should be interpreting life and how we should be interpreting history. Because although the history of the Old Testament is about Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and God's people and Moses and all these things, that's not the perspective from which the psalmist views what God has done. The psalmist writes, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. At the end of verse 2, the nations are saying, the Lord has done great things. At the end of verse 3, or in verse 3, it says, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Right? And so that's a lesson that we need to learn about how to view our lives and how to view history, is that God is at work. That history and your story and my story and the story of the nation of Israel and the story of God's people is really God's story. It's his story being worked out through a divine plan and divine purpose according to his divine decree. That's what the perspective of the psalmist here is, that God has done something. Here's something I want to clue you in on. 
If you're in this room this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer, if you will, you share a story that's very similar to the story of Israel. It's a story of deliverance. It's a story of being granted freedom. It's a story of Jesus setting you free from Satan, sin, and death for all time. It's the story of Jesus buying your freedom at the cost of his life. Galatians 5.1 reminds us that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our story, your story, my story, it's a story of being set free from captivity. It's a story very similar to the story of what God's people who were singing this psalm on the way to Jerusalem shared together. It's a shared collective story of deliverance. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been set free from something? Have you ever been in a situation where somebody had to deliver you by the work of their own hands and not yours? I'm going to give you an illustration. It's kind of humorous. Several years ago, when my kids were little, my daughters are 9 and 11, um, several years ago when they were little and they were still in car seats, uh, Amy and the girls came to pick me up from work and we were heading to the beach. And uh, we were in a hurry to get to the beach for whatever reason. Um, and so I jumped in the back seat of the car to sit between the two car seats of the girls. So Natalie on one side, Laurel on the other side. And uh, if you know car seats, you know uh, sometimes they can be wide. Sometimes they have these little lips on the side. Um, and so I'm in the car seat between the two of them. I go to put my seatbelt on and um, move my arms back like this. And all of a sudden, I realize that I'm trapped. Uh, the car seat, I mean, the, the seatbelt's not moving. You know how a seatbelt locks into space and you can't, you can't move. So I'm locked like this, and my arms are locked up under this, the two car seats, and I can't move. And I started to freak out a little bit. I'm going to be honest with you uh, because I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. And so I'm struggling and I'm probably whining a little bit and complaining and I'm starting to just lose my mind, um, which is ridiculous, but that's what's happening. And so I look up and in the rearview mirror, Amy is watching me struggle to get out of me being trapped. And do you know what she's doing? She's laughing hysterically. And the matter I got... And the longer I struggled, the more she laughed. And she just continued to laugh at me. It felt like a good 20 minutes before she came to rescue me from between these two car seats. It was probably like at least five minutes, seriously. She just sat there and laughed at me. And to this day, anytime Amy thinks about that situation, she just busts out laughing hysterically because of how ridiculous I was being, right? I mean, that's really what it is. How did I get myself trapped between two car seats? And why did I get so freaked out about it? Um, in that moment, Amy showed up and she delivered me from where I was trapped. What we have here in Psalm 126 is the perspective of a psalmist who views the totality of life from the perspective of an almighty God who delivers his people. A God who shows up and delivers his people. And that's how we're meant to live our lives and view our lives and understand our Heavenly Father. Because we will find ourselves like the psalmist, experiencing 
both the joys and the hurts of this life. And all of those joys and hurts, tears and laughter, mourning turned to joy, all of it is to be understood from the perspective of an almighty God who shows up and does something for his people. There are some of us in this room who are still captive to Satan, sin, and death because we've never submitted our lives to Christ. We don't know what it means to be freed from those things. For others of us in this room, we might be believers, but we might feel captive. We might feel captive to the jobs that we hate. We might feel captive to the expectations of others. We might feel captive to the sin in our lives that we can't seem to overcome for some reason. We're captive to choices that bad choices that we've made, whether those bad choices be financial or business relationships or um, whatever else, personal relationships. We feel captive. And in response, we need to remember that we are deeply loved and deeply cared for by an almighty God, an almighty God who shows up to deliver his people. And this leads to within our hearts, like we see in this psalm, uh, a sense of joy and gladness which is unspeakable, where our tears turn to joy and our mourning turns to gladness. And there's a sense, isn't there, in which every Christian knows something of experiencing this unspeakable joy. If you've ever tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious, if you've ever been brought out of captivity, if you've ever understood exactly how captive you were to Satan's sin and death, you understand the joy that comes with God's deliverance. If you've been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can testify that He is your Lord and Savior and that your sins are forgiven, that you have peace with Almighty God, you know something of the joy that the psalmist is expressing in remembering and expecting that joy again. It's a joy that led the psalmist to say, we were like those who dream. It's almost as if we were dreaming and that this goodness of God couldn't possibly be true. That the goodness and the graciousness and the forgiveness and the provision and the deliverance of God in my life and in the life of others, it can't possibly be real and true. I can hardly believe it's true. I must be dreaming. And so I have to ask you this morning, are you rejoicing in the deliverance of God. Because if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ, then we can relate to the story that the psalmist is telling because we have been delivered. And for the believer, that brings great joy knowing that God has done something on our behalf. Are you experiencing the joy that the psalmist here is remembering and expecting again? Number two, there's something else I think we can learn from this psalm. It's this. The psalm provides the perspective of a delivered person versus a person who simply sees deliverance take place. Right? Stay with me on this. On verse two, it says this. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. It's amazing when God delivers his people, provides for his people, that those who are not his people turn around and say, the covenant God of Israel, the covenant God of those people did something on, his on their behalf. The Lord has done great things for them. 
But do you know the difference? Is that the people who are saying the Lord has done great things for them, that's the sole sum, that's the total sum of their story with God. All they can say is God did great things for them. Whereas the psalmist has a completely different perspective. For those who share the story of God's deliverance, it plays out completely different. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a completely different story. It's entirely different. The perspective of the one who has been delivered is entirely different. In verse 1, God's people were so amazed by God's deliverance that they thought it was just a dream. In verse 2, God's people laughed and shouted. In verse 3, they were glad. In verse 4, the experience of their deliverance called them to ask God to deliver them again. In verse 5, their experience leads them to expect their tears to turn to joy. In verse 6, they act in faith. They keep sowing. They keep planting. They keep going about the work that God had called them to, albeit sorrowfully, with tears, weeping, but demonstrating faith that God will provide on the other side. The remembrance of their deliverance their story, the collective story of deliverance leads them to act in faith, right? There's something to be heard here. There's something to be found here. There's something that should speak to our hearts here about how God's deliverance in the past, a short story we all share if we're believers, actually leads to active faith because of that deliverance, even in the midst of sorrow and tears. The psalmist here gives us two incredibly powerful pictures related to faith. They're, they're so vivid and strong. Um, two powerful pictures. In verse 4, the psalmist says, well, let me read it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. It's a powerful picture. The Negev is the south country um, below Jerusalem. It's an arid, parched desert. It butts up to the wilderness of Sinai, where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, right? Um, it's south down there. It's desert. It's cracked, dirt, desert. In the summer, it's dry. When the winter streams come, Right, They flow through like these incredible flash floods, um, and they create these um, sort of wadis in the desert, these streams in the desert that are dry in the summer, but it's where the water flows through in the winter. And so the psalmist is thinking here, that's where I am. I'm in the summer. I'm in the Negev. I'm in the desert, and it's dry, and I'm thirsty. I'm in the desert. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert, but that's what the song, that's the picture that the psalmist is giving here. A, a, a dry, arid, parched desert, and that's where the psalmist is, and the psalmist needs some water to come through and provide some relief. The writer calls to the Lord in faith and says, Restore 
restore? Would you bring some water to my life because I feel like I'm in the desert and it's summer and there's no water and it's dry and I'm thirsty? God, will you restore? And it's an incredibly vivid, powerful picture for believers, right? You never get to a point in the Christian life where you're not in the desert sometimes. You're never at the point in the Christian life where you're not calling out to God, God, my soul, my heart, my mind, my spirit is so dry. And God, I need you to restore me to the way it was. I need that water to flow. And the psalmist here remembers what God has done and begs for God to do it again with this incredible picture of dryness in the desert and water coming in to provide relief. It's incredible. The image switches in verses 5 and 6. The verses say, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalmist switches the metaphor. The psalmist switches the imagery and goes from a dry desert to this farming metaphor. I, I don't know if you've ever farmed or know people who farmed um, my family, I, I have lots of people who, who have or who still do farm. Um, but, but if you've farmed, if you plant gardens, you know that farming and planting uh, is really an act of faith. You prepare the ground, you plant the seed, you water the crops, you tend to the weeds, and you wait, and you hope. And so much of what happens when you're farming or when you're planting a garden is entirely up to things over which you have no control. Too little rain, too much rain, rain at the wrong time, cold at the wrong time, heat at the wrong time, too much cold, too much heat, and you lose everything. Right? Mr. Mr. Collier was telling me just a few weeks ago about all these blueberry bushes um, that he has at his house, and normally every year... Um, he harvests hundreds of buckets of blueberries. But back in the spring, we had a really cold snap. I don't know if you remember it for like a week. And it completely ruined his blueberry crop. So there's only a few blueberries that have come to be harvested, right? Planting is about faith. It's about waiting. But there's something even on top of this agricultural metaphor. Because it's not just sowing and waiting, it's sowing in tears. It's faithfully going about the work God has called us to do, doing the Lord's business, doing the Lord's bidding, doing what we can to take care of His family, doing what we can to take care of our family. But the tears are flowing because we're waiting on the hope. We're waiting on the joy. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, though we are sowing now in tears, would you give us a harvest that comes with joy? God, we recognize that right now is tough. But God, would you give us that joy again? The psalmist elaborates it on verse 6 when he says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I want you to know that this is a statement of faith. It's a statement of hope that God is going to act again. And it's absolutely true for every believer, right? For we may sow in this world with tears, but one day we'll reap with joy. The psalmist is 
hoping for this prayer even to be answered here and now. Right now, God, will you give us a little taste of what's coming? Will you give us a little taste of that joy? Right now, we're sowing in tears. God, will you give us just a little taste of joy? And so he prays, and so he hopes, and he plants. Because of a memory, a memory that was so powerful of a rescue that was so dramatic that he had to pinch himself to believe that it was even true. And then he wondered, Lord, is it possible that you could do this again? And then he prays, Lord, do it again. There's a third thing for us to pick up in this psalm. I told you last week when I preached, when you were here, uh, if you were here, that um, it doesn't matter where I start, I'm, already, I'm always going to end up with Jesus, right? So that's, we're making that shift right now. Psalm 126 provides the promise of a coming deliverer because Psalms 126 finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. At his first coming, Jesus provided a deliverance for us from Satan's sin and death for all time, a deliverance that could have come from nowhere else. But between the first coming of Christ and the next coming of Christ, when we'll understand this joy completely, when the fruition of this promise will come to pass in a way that we can't even fathom right now, between now and then, we live in a sphere of time that is characterized by pain and hurt and distress. Jesus himself told his disciples that. But look at what else Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. Look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The ultimate fulfillment of what the psalmist was looking for is found in Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of the joy that the psalmist was looking for is found in Jesus. We may not be able to experience the complete ramifications for that right now, but Jesus promises that one day the fulfillment of that joy will be like nothing else we've ever seen, and no joy will be taken from you. The writer of the Psalms, God's people in the Old Testament, God's people today, we have a shared story of deliverance. And we have a shared hope that God is going to bring joy one day that lasts forever, that can never be taken away. And we know that that comes with Jesus on this side this side of Psalm 126. This life will bring pain and hurt and sorrow, but that pain and hurt and sorrow 
is not meaningless. We may not understand why it has to be that way. But we can all look to our deliverer in faith, knowing that one day there will be immense joy that cannot be taken away because of Jesus. We may but just taste it now, but one day we'll know it in full. Right? So the call on our life this morning, if you're here in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you don't even know what that means, the call on your life is to be delivered from Satan's sin and death. That's what Jesus offers. If you're in this room this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the call on your life is to remember what Christ has done for you. To remember the story of God's deliverance. To remember the story that we share and to have that actually affect the way you live. Right? That's, that's what this Psalm 126 is all about. The travelers going to Jerusalem remembering what God has done, worshiping what God has done and asking God to do it again. So if you're here and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the call is to remember and to work in faith and to act in faith, even if the tears and the sorrow exist, because one day we have a hope that Jesus is going to put an end to that and provide a joy that can never be taken away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the reminder from your word that you are a deliverer. Thank you for the reminder from your word that you have acted on our behalf. Thank you for the reminder from your word that we can have great joy in you. And while we may be able to just taste it now, God, one day we'll know it in full. Thank you for that hope. God, I pray even now that you would make that real to our hearts and minds. And God, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to move into a time of response um, where in just a second you can come forward and take communion um, and remember the body of Christ that was broken for you and the blood of Christ that was shared for you. We do it every Sunday here at Redemption as a way to visibly remember and proclaim what Christ has done for us. So I'd invite you in a minute to come forward, go down this middle aisle and take some bread. Um, dip it into the wine or juice, and so remember what Christ has done and proclaim to one another that you believe it. During this time, we're also going to have an opportunity to worship through singing. We're going to have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving basket in the back um, to where you can give your tithes and offerings. Uh, you also have the opportunity to sit right where you are and pray and reflect on what God has done for you um, and to remember what Christ has done. And so I would encourage you even now as we move forward, uh, to continue to worship, uh, and to continue to meet with God in this place. I'm going to pray one more time, and we'll move on. God, thank you that we have this time, a moment to worship and to remember. God, thank you that by taking communion here, we can remember what you've done for us, and we can proclaim that we believe it. God, I pray as we sing, as we take communion, as we give, as we pray, that you would continue to draw us to yourself, that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place, that we would be drawn to you, and that we would know you deeply and truly. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.